0: (laughs) What about me? Good morning. (laughs) Keisha gets all the attention. Hey, we're in week three of a series that we're calling Yeshua the Prequel, and we're taking these weeks to look back at the Old Testament And we're doing it for a couple reasons. And and one of the main reasons is that when we begin to look at the Old Testament and we begin to see all of the pieces of the puzzle coming together, when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, what happens is the picture actually begins to get clearer and clearer, right? And so you have this opportunity to look back at the Old Testament, see the pieces coming together, and it actually becomes this faith-building opportunity. Seeing all of these things line up as being God's sovereignty helps to build our faith. It actually helps us to lean into the Scriptures and say, all things really do work together for good for those who are called in Christ Jesus, right? So, so there's this, this great faith-building opportunity that, that this, this series gives us. But it also reinforces for us that this is not two books. Now, we've, we've kind of conveniently called it the Old Testament and the New Testament, but this is one book, and all of this book, from start to finish, testifies to Jesus. And Jesus actually says, if you read this book and you don't see me, if you study this book and you don't see me in it, then you've missed the point because I am the very point of the scriptures. So in some ways, we are just applying a discipline and we are learning something together of a way to look at scriptures, to study the scriptures, whether it's Old or New Testament, and ask the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? And then the second question that we want to keep asking, even as we go through the series, is what does this have to do with me? What does God want from me? Or what I always say is, so what? Because it's not enough just to study the scripture. God wants something from you and for you. And so that question of, so what, needs to be part of how we go back and how we look at the scriptures. So this week, we're going to look at the story of Moses and the, the plagues and really spend a good portion of our time talking about the Passover, But as we do, we want to hold on to those two questions. So allow me to pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We got a lot of ground to cover here in the next 20, 30 minutes. I pray that you would help us to be attentive. You would help us to hear what you want us to hear. Lord, I pray for the people in the room who have heard this story a hundred times or a thousand times. I pray they would hear it today for the first time. That the wonder and the amazement of the story would draw them in. It's so easy to take these stories for granted, but they aren't just stories. They really happened, and you really did show up, and you really did all of what we're about to talk about. So Lord, help us to hear it, and help us to marvel at how big you are, how wonderful you are, how amazing you are. Help us to see you. Help us to see your character. Help us to see your son, and it's in your son's name we pray, amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to kind of recap the events leading up to the Exodus. Now, the Exodus really is just that moment in time when the people of Israel are actually released from bondage, or released from slavery, from um, the Egyptians. So that's when we talk about the Exodus that we're talking about. But, but there were things that took place before that. And if we don't have those things in our mind, then we sort of miss out on what was really going on. So I'm going to give you uh, the reader's digest, the cliff notes, if you will, of the biblical narrative leading up to that. Not all of it, but what I think is important. And we're going to start with this guy named Abraham. So Abraham was chosen by God. And the, the irony is we don't know why. We don't know why God chose Abraham, but we do know that God looked down and he saw Abraham and he spoke to Abraham and Abraham believed and God said, I'm going to make a promise with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you and the covenant I'm going to make with you is totally unconditional. I'm doing this because I want to. Abraham didn't jump through any specific hoops. He didn't, he didn't do something that all of a sudden God said, wow, look at how amazing that guy is. I'm going to pour out this. But God chose Abraham and God makes this unconditional covenant with Abraham. And I'm going to read through some scriptures and just because we're moving fast, I just want to let you know we're going to end up in Exodus and that's what I'm going to ask you to to pull out and we're going to study. But I'm just going to pull out some scriptures as we get along the way, helping you to understand the narrative. So if you're I just don't want you to feel like, where is he? What's he doing? So that's what's going on here. So Genesis twelve two through 3. This is the covenant that God makes with, with Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. Make you into a great nation. Hang on to that. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. That last sentence there, all the people on earth will be blessed through you, is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, that we are blessed in this room because of Jesus who came from Abraham's lineage. So that's, that's the messianic prophecy. And then we see in, in Genesis 17, God continues to kind of unpack or unfold or bring more layers, if you will, to this unconditional covenant. So in verse 6, he says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make you very fruitful. You're going to have lots and lots of descendants is what he's saying. I will make nations, excuse me, nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you from generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as foreigners, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So we see this promise, this covenant of of kings, we see this promise of nations, and we see this promise of a place, an actual land. He says, Look, I know you're just living in Canaan, I know you're a foreigner, you're not a Canaanite, you live in this foreign land, but at some point I'm going to give you, your descendants, this particular land. So that land became known as. The promised land. So when we read scriptures and we read the words of the promised land, that's where it all came from. That original covenant where God was saying, I am going to give you, Abraham, your descendants, this particular land. So that's why we call it the promised land. So Abraham. Abraham here's this amazing prophecy. There's this amazing promise. And it says, I'm going I'm to give you lots of descendants. So Abraham has two sons. And the two sons actually come very late in his life. His sons are Ishmael and Isaac. And he struggles, his family struggles, with, with fertility issues. They can't have a child. And you've got to remember, in this culture, having babies was what it was all about. As a matter of fact, you were kind of deemed either blessed or cursed whether or not you could produce offspring. And so these are people in this day and age where, where, where men would have 20, 30, 40 children. And that would be part of their heritage. That would be part of what made them more of a man. So, so Abraham actually hears from the living God who says, look, I am going to make you a man with many descendants. So he had to immediately think, that means I'm going to have children after children after children because that's what the culture says. But he gets two, two. And there had to be moments where Abraham was saying, but what about that promise, God? What about that thing you said to me? And we know that that's what he's saying because he even takes matters into his own hands a little bit. But so there's this, there's just a little bit of confusion. But remember, God made a promise and and God's going to keep his promise. But then, so there's Ishmael and Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons. These sons happen to be twins, but they have two sons and it's Esau and Jacob. Aren't they cute? They look a lot like the other kids, I guess. But Esau and Jacob come along, and we're still wondering, where's this lineage of descendants? Where's this, this multitude of kids? Where's this, this promise going to come to fruition? And then Jacob, Jacob ends up having 12 sons. They actually become the, the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. But they have 12 sons, and the 11th son is Joseph. And if you couldn't figure it out, Joseph's the one in the really cool outfit, because... Because Jacob liked Joseph more, and so Jacob gives Joseph this coat of many colors. I don't know if it really looked like that. So what I like about this thing is it reminds me of the back of the minivan, right? Can you see it like That's the back of Abraham's chariot. He's got ding, 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 and a little camel there. Yeah, we were being creative when we were putting this together. Anyway, so Jacob has this uh, show of favoritism towards Joseph. He begins to love Joseph more than his other brothers, and he creates jealousy, and he creates problems to the point that that his brothers, his, his older brothers, rebel. They beat him up. They throw him in a pit. And they actually sell him into slavery. Not a good day for, for a brother. So he's sold into slavery. And the slave people actually take him to, to Egypt. And so Joseph is the first to arrive in Egypt. And, and we're going to study Joseph next week. So, so be here for that. But, but through a series of amazing events, absolutely a whole, a whole series of events, Joseph ends up being second in command. The slave becomes second in command only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And through a dream and through interpretation of a dream, Joseph finds out, hey, there's going to be a famine. we got seven years to prepare for a famine. And then the famine comes. There's seven years of famine. And all of the surrounding nations are literally starving. Literally, they can't survive. They're going to die if they don't get something to eat. So people begin to move to Egypt in order to get their sustenance, to get it. And some of the people who come to Egypt happen to be Joseph's, oh, they're gone. Those, Those brothers that were up there. Joseph's brothers actually end up coming to Egypt, but their wives their children, and his dad. And by now he has a new little brother. They all moved to Egypt, and they all live under Joseph. Now, I get it. I'm, I'm telling you the story at mock speed here, but I want you to, 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 to get to where we're at. So the whole family's there. There's about 70 of them. And then we fast forward 400 years. The family showed up. They're living in Egypt. They've, they've taken up residence there. 400 years passed by, and the scriptures say that the pharaohs, or the kings, forgot what Joseph had done for Egypt. They forgot that Joseph saved Egypt. And so they began to oppress and they began to enslave the Israelites. So when 400 years go, go by, now there's literally millions of Israelites living in Egypt. But it says that the king looked and he saw how mass, how many numbers there were. And what he also saw is that they were strong. They were physically strong. They, they probably had to be to survive because they were slaves and they worked hard for a living. So they were they were muscular, they were strong, and, and even in, in childbirth, they were strong. The scripture says, and it made the king afraid, the pharaoh afraid, because he thought at some point these slaves are going to rebel. They're going to rebel against me, and they're going to take over my land. So he puts out an edict, and he says, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to kill all the boys. We're going to actually kill the newborn boys. And, and again, this, this child rearing, this having a baby, this, this having a son was the very identity of manhood in that day. You were judged by whether or not you could produce a male offspring. And so this edict comes out, and this this heart is sort of violently and and horribly ripped away. Imagine the trauma of giving birth, carrying a baby, giving birth, the birth the, the baby being taken from you and literally slaughtered. But that's what's going on. And this woman has a baby, and she names him Moses. And like any good mother, she says, I do not want my baby to die. I'd rather my baby be raised by somebody else than to be killed at the hands of Pharaoh. So in great bravery and great sacrifice, she puts him in a basket and she floats him across the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter actually takes the baby in and raises. The the scriptures say that he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. Moses grows up, but Moses is an Israelite and he knows he's an Israelite. He knows the story, maybe not about the basket, but he knows and he sees the oppression of his people. And in his anger, he takes matters into his own hand, and he kills one of the slave drivers. And he buries him in the sand. But then somebody finds out, and somebody tells Moses. And in fear of prosecution, Moses runs away from Egypt. In fear of going to jail or being killed, I don't know what the penalty would have been, Moses... He's afraid and he runs away. And for 40 years, he's running away. And then he has this amazing moment. You've all heard about it, right? That, that burning bush thing on the mountain, right? So, so God shows up and God says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to free my people. I want you to free them and I want you to take them to the promised land. And he would have known what he was talking about because he would have known all about Abraham. And so in obedience, Moses goes back there's a whole story in that as well. And I was sitting with some friends this week, and we were talking about this story. We were talking about last week, the story of Noah. And it is really phenomenal that these men of the faith were obedient. When you think about what God was asking him to do, the bravery, the courage, but the faith it took to do this. I mean, Moses wasn't just going back to any place. He was going back to the strongest, the strongest nation in the world. They were the world power. And he was just a man, but he had God on his side, and he went back against what all wisdom would have said to free the people. Okay, so that kind of brings us up to where we are right now, and I have no idea where I am in my my notes, so give me one second to catch up. Okay, we've already talked about that. Sorry, I get all excited about telling the story. So, So Moses returns, and he says to Pharaoh, he shows up in front of Pharaoh, and he says, God has sent me, you are to let my people go. And we know Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't let the people go. And so God unleashes this series of plagues, 10 plagues, and he does it for a twofold reason. And, and one of the reasons is he wants to make sure everybody knows why this happened. He wants to make sure everybody knows. He wants to make sure Pharaoh knows. He wants to make sure Pharaoh's followers know. He wants to make sure the Israelites know, but he also wants to make sure all of the surrounding nations know that I am God and I rescue my people. He wants everyone to see that, that there's no way to, 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 to miss that this whole thing in Egypt that's going on, it was a God thing. He wants it to be so big, so amazing, so supernatural that nobody can say, well, that's, that's crazy. I don't know how that happened. That he wants them all to know that it's, that it's a God thing. But the other thing he wanted to do is he wanted to make sure that, that he debunked or he made sure that, that all of the Egyptian gods were kind of... There was, a, there was a frontal attack on them. So let me explain that. So the, the Egyptians believed that there were two gods that protected the Nile River. The god was Apis, A-P-I-S, and Isis. They were the god and goddess of the Nile. And they believed that the Nile River, River was actually the bloodstream of Egypt. They believed that the Nile River was actually the bloodstream to the gods. And that all life in Egypt and all power in Egypt was brought to them through these two gods through the Nile. So when the first plague came, the plague was what? It turned the river to blood. God said, you think it's blood? I'm going to show you blood. And everything in the river didn't have life. Everything died and it floated to the top and it was putrid and it smelled and it was horrible. And God says, tell me about Abus. Tell me about Isis. How strong are your gods now? The Egyptians, they worshiped this, this goddess that was a frog-like woman. She had a frog's head and a woman's body. And, and I think her name was Haget. And, and they would worship her. And, and even in their day, it was, it was sacrilegious to kill a frog because flo- frogs were sacred. So the second plague comes, and it's frogs. But it's not just a couple of frogs; it's millions and millions and millions of frogs. And they come out of the river, and they cover every flat surface. And you wouldn't be able to take a step without killing a frog, and you wouldn't be able to move. As a matter of fact, you would start killing frogs just to have a place to sleep or a place to walk. And the frogs piled up, and the frogs stunk. And it's like God was saying, "How strong is this God, Haggit? I am God." And there's no other God. I am God, and the gods you serve are nothing. And the reason I think that God was doing this was he wanted the nations to see, but he also wanted the Israelites to see because the Israelites had begun to adopt the spiritual practices of the Egyptians. They had begun to worship these false gods. They had lived with them for 400 years. It would become a part of their culture. How do we know that? Because they show up in the desert and things get hard. What's the first thing they do? They throw in all their gold and they make a calf and they pray to the calf, right? They pray to this calf. What's one of the plagues that the firstborn of all the cattle is going to die, right? So, so every one of the plagues, one by one, God through through, there's one plague after another, and they're all there to, to debunk, to, to make sure that the people know that I am God and, and there's no one else like me. So Exodus nine fourteen, God says, I do this so that you know that there is none like me in all the earth. He wanted the Israelites to know that. He wanted the Egyptians to know that. And he wanted every surrounding community, every nation to know there is no one like the God of the Israelites. I love this. He actually says through Moses to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 15 and 16. So if you want to open up to Exodus 9, we're going to stay in Exodus here for the next minute. I'll give you a second to do that. So Exodus 9, we're going to read 15 and 16. Moses is talking for God to Pharaoh. And he says that these are the words of God. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off of the face of the earth. What is he saying? He's saying, look... With just my word, with just a breath, with just my hand waving, every Egyptian could be gone. Every Egyptian would just disappear. I could wipe you away. Every Egyptian could die if that's what I wanted. But then in 16, he says, but I have raised you, the Egyptians, up for this very purpose. That I might show my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's 3,400 years since the historical date of all this happening. 3,400 years about. And I am standing on a stage and I am talking to you about the plagues. It was set in history. It was such an amazing moment that generation after generation, year after year, moment after moment, people are still talking about this amazing moment. God said, "I planned all this for this very day so that I could show up strong and I could do it in such a way that generation after generation after generation would know the story of Moses and would know the story of the place. God wanted to show up huge on his people's behalf. So then the hail comes. Then the locust comes. Then the darkness comes. All, are, if, if you go back and you look, they all debunks one of the Egyptians' God. And they all help show that God is God and the, the God of the, the Egyptians are useless. But then the final plague comes. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time today talking about. The final plague changes everything. So look at Exodus 11. We're going to read verse 1 and verses 4 and 5. Exodus 11, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. He's not just going to say, okay, you can go. He's going to force you to leave. He's going to push you out. He's going to drive you out of the land. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. At midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, firstborn of son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all of the firstborn cattle as well. The story that started with the killing of innocent Israelite boys, the, the, the table is turned. And now it's the firstborn of the Egyptians that are gonna be taken. All of the firstborn died, not just the children. If you were firstborn, you died. Even if you were grandpa but you were the firstborn in your family, you died. This wasn't just for the babies. This was the firstborn of every household passed away when this this plague went over. And what I find fascinating is that that God really didn't ask the the Israelites to participate in any kind of way in the other plagues. He didn't give them any instructions. He just told them what was going to happen, and it happened. But now God does something different. He says to them, I want you to participate in this particular moment in time. He asks them to participate because he wants to set this moment in time as a spiritual moment. That something profound is about to happen and I want you to remember it year after year, generation after generation. I want you to play a part in what's going to happen. So he gives Moses these instructions. Go to chapter 12, verse 21. Chapter 12:21. Moses is giving them instructions about what to do when this, when this plague comes. He says, "Go at once and select an animal from your family's slaughter and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, which is just a plant, dip it into the blood of the basin and put some of it on the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over your doorway. Pass over, pass over. That's why we call it the Passover, because the angel of death passes over those doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house or strike you down. We also know from earlier in chapter 12 that that Passover lamb that we see in verse 21 is meant to be a male lamb, that's perfect, that's without blemish. The best of the best, the very best of their lamb, a male lamb without blemish, is to be brought into the house and slaughtered as the Passover lamb. Well, the angel of death comes, and Pharaoh's son indeed dies, and so do the first, the firstborn sons of all of the the Egyptians. But the firstborn sons of the Israelites, those who followed through, those who put blood on their doors, their sons were saved. And the exodus actually begins, and Pharaoh really does drive the people out, and their, their freedom is underway. But all of this happens as part of God's plan to establish a nation. All of this happens to fulfill a promise that, that God made to Abraham centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And all of this happened, the scriptures say, that God said all of this happened, that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. God is writing an epic story. He is writing this amazing story, and he's making sure that the whole world, if they will stop and see all that God has done, the whole world will see that God is big, and God can show up on our behalf. This is a great story. It's an amazing story. I think somebody should make a movie of this story. Maybe get Charlton Heston to play Moses. It would be epic, right? Well, it was epic. It's an amazing story. Even when you watch that corny old show it's still amazing to see just how huge the story is the drama the tension how it all unfolds it's an amazing story but it's not just a story it really did happen it's historically accurate it is exactly what God had planned all the way along and the question we have to ask is what does this have to do with Jesus what does this have to do with me I want to start by answering the question by sharing a a basic study principle for you. When you study the Word of God and you hear the Word of God talking about a group of people... So in this case, we're studying about the Israelites as a, as a large group. But if, even if you're studying the Scriptures, and, and the Scriptures are talking about the Pharisees as a group, or they're talking about the crowds as a group, or maybe it's talking about Jesus' followers as a group, there is a spiritual principle that, that we can always look at how the, the groups behave, and they, they are a metaphor for us in our individual lives. In other words, we can see their behaviors and say, God, show me how I am like the Israelite. Show me how I am like the Pharisees. Show me how I'm like the crowd. Show me how I'm like one of your disciples. So there's this this principle that we can apply. So sometimes we look at the crowds and we forget this very basic study principle. But when when you think about these particular Israelites, what do we see? We see that they are in bondage we see that they are in slavery we see that they are oppressed they are hard-pressed in exodus 3 says the lord says i have seen the misery of my people and i have heard them crying out here's the principle that we need to hold on to god sees his people God sees his people. He, he is not just up there floating around in the cosmic abyss. And he doesn't just see the Israelites. He sees each individual. He doesn't just see Grace Community Church. He sees each and every one of us individually. God sees, and then it said, God hears the cries of the people. This God who sees us as individuals also hears our prayers. He hears our cry for help. And the story of the Exodus is that God rescues, that God shows up big, That by God's hand, we are actually set free. It's an amazing picture of what God has for us. God sees, God hears, and God rescues. The final plague is really the key to understanding the entire story. Because the angel of death really is coming. But it's the blood of the Lamb that gives us freedom. So John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching and he said to the people, Look, or some of your translations say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Speaking to the the people he was speaking to, he could have just as easily said, look, that's the Passover Lamb. That's the actual Passover Lamb. All that we've been doing for all these years has just been a symbol, but he is the actual Passover Lamb whose blood will save us from our sins. The story was told for 1,400 years, all pointing the way towards Jesus. 3,500 years ago, 3,400 years ago, God established this reoccurring ceremony, this reoccurring event called Passover and called communion, where we stop and we remember that God sees and God hears and God rescues. Every time we take the cup, every time we hold the bread, we should remember the story. We should remember where this came from. We should remember the story all the way back to the slavery and all the way up to the birth of Jesus and all the way up to him going to the cross. And remember all this because it builds our faith and it helps us to see that God isn't just showing up when the New Testament is written, that God was writing a story all the way along that pointed towards Jesus and pointed towards his death and told all of us that God sees us, that God hears us, and God rescues us. This isn't just a random moment in time. The more I've studied the Passover, the more I've studied this story, the more I see God's hand in all of it, the more all of the traditions, all of the, all of the processes that were handed down, even in, in the Passover traditions, they all point towards Jesus in such a profound way. I was talking to a friend after the first service, and I'm amazed that those who come out of a Jewish tradition, when they celebrate the Passover, I'm amazed that they don't see Jesus because he's everywhere. It's all about Jesus. The entire ceremony is about Jesus. It's an amazing thing. The message of Exodus is really a message of freedom. What did Jesus say to us? He said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And this is a story that helps us to welcome our freedom. But the question is, do you know that you even need to be free? Because, you know, when... Moses showed up, the people didn't necessarily want to be free. They thought they had it pretty good. Well, i you sure? We don't. I don't know if we want to go with you. They were, they were so admired in their oppression that they didn't even know they wanted freedom. And we have the same problem. Sometimes we need to be set free and we don't even know what's holding us back. We don't even know the bondage that we live under. God did all these amazing things to set his people free so that Pharaoh and the world would know there is none like me in all the earth. What I love about the Exodus story is that God does the heavy lifting, that God is the one who sets his people free, that it's God's power that does the work. I believe that God wants to do more than we can ask or imagine. I think he wants to show up in our lives in a way that we can't even fathom, but the question is, are we even asking him to? What does this have to do with Jesus? Everything. Everything. Because it was the blood of the Lamb that caused the angel of death to pass over. There is this direct, one-to-one, absolute correlation between the blood of the Passover Lamb and the blood of Jesus on the cross, who is our salvation. And the question is, what does it have to do with you and me? Or so what, as I often say? Yeshua, Jesus, he came to give us life, he came to give us freedom, and he came to show us there is none like me, in all the earth there is no one like God in all the earth he came to model something for us he came to show us God loves he came to rescue us from death he came to set us free he came to make a way for the power of God to be manifested in our lives not so that we could just be bigger people but so that the world would see God in us God wants to do things in your life so that when people look at you, they say there's something different about that person. I see the, the, the movement of God. I see the Spirit of God in that person. That's why God wants to show up strong in our lives. We sing a song. We're going to sing it in a few minutes, that there is power in the name of Jesus. We sing there's healing in the name of Jesus. We're going to sing there's freedom in the name of Jesus. But I wonder if that's really our experience. Is that really what we experience in our walk with God? I often wonder if we want to. Are we afraid? Are we afraid what would happen if we really gave in to the Spirit of God? What would he ask me to do? Can I tell you whatever he asks you to do will be the greatest adventure of your life and not to be afraid of anything. I love the story of Exodus. I love because it reminds me that I cannot set myself free. I cannot grow myself I cannot preach without the power of God showing up. I cannot do anything. If God doesn't show up, I am toast. I got nothing without God. The story of Exodus reminds us that God is powerful, and God shows up on our behalf. God sees, and God hears, and God rescues. You can clap. I know you want to. So the question is, where do you need to experience God's power? Really? What, what, what is creating fear in you these days? Where do you need God to show up? Where do you need to experience God's healing? I know a lot of your stories. I know the diagnosis you've received. And I know the diagnosis some of you are afraid of. Where do you need God's healing in your life? Where do you need God's freedom? What is it that's holding you back? Where is there bondage in your life? I want to share one more story from scripture there is a king his name is king david the scriptures say he is a man after god's own heart he's the only one that gets that moniker a man after god's own heart but somewhere along the way david loses his way he goes into a funk takes his eyes off of jesus and he sees a married beautiful woman and he goes to her and he lays with her and then he has her husband killed and then he marries her All this sin, all these mistakes. You wonder, where's that man after God's own heart? But David's in a funk. And then through a series of events and through a friend coming and talking to David, he goes into a season of repentance. He sees who he really is. And he is devastated. He sees his own depravity. And the 51st Psalm is is David's response to that understanding when he finally comes out of the fog and sees all that he's done against God. And he writes this amazing psalm. Maybe you want to read the psalm later today and put it in that context. But one of the things he writes in the psalm is psalm 51 7. He says to God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And we just read the first Passover. Remember what the instructions were that God gave through Moses? He said in Exodus 12, take a bunch of hyssop, tape these plants, dip them into the blood in the basin and put the blood on the top and the sides of your door frame. And now David who's heard this story since he was just a little lad. He'd heard this story ever since he can remember. He sat through the Passover meal year after year after year. He's heard this story. He's been told this story. He's lived into this story. He's participated in that meal where it's actually an acting out of the story. He knows the story inside and out. But he also knows it's not just a story, it's truth. And so in David's deepest moment, when he knows he needs God's power, when he knows he needs God's healing, and he knows he needs God's freedom, he doesn't try to do anything other than saying, God, take that plant, and you dip it in the blood, and you wash me. You wash me with the blood, because it's the only hope I have. The only hope I have is that blood. I can't do anything to earn favor with you, God. I am messed up and screwed up. Wash me in the blood of the Lamb. How profound is that? David knows God sees me. David knows when I cry out to God, he hears me, and he says, God is the only one who can rescue me. The question is, where do you need to experience God's power? Where do you need to experience God's healing? Where do you need God's freedom? I want to make sure that you understand an absolute theological truth. When you make a decision to follow Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit actually takes up residence in you. The Holy Spirit actually lives in you. That's the same spirit that brought all these plagues. It's the same spirit that moved on behalf of all of these people 3,400 years ago and set this all in motion. This powerful God, the one who keeps saying there's none like me in all the earth, his spirit actually takes up residence in you. The God who spoke all of creation into existence actually lives in you. And he says, I want to show up strong on your behalf. I want my spirit to be unleashed in your life in ways that you've never even asked or imagine, God desires to do more in us and through us than we even know today we're going to partake of communion or the Eucharist or the last supper whatever tradition you grew up in whatever you call it and I just want to remind you of some of what was going on then that first day in the upper room the scriptures tell us that That Jesus knew that the time had come for the Passover. As a matter of fact, it says that the time had come, and so he sent two of his disciples to make arrangements for the meal. The meal is the Passover meal. And so he sent these two disciples in ahead of him, and and what were they going to do? They were going to buy some bread. They were going to find a male lamb without blemish. And they were going to slaughter the lamb. They were going to save some of the blood and they were going to set up the room for a tradition that had been handed down for 1,400 years. When Jesus is in that upper room, when we we read the account of the Last Supper, we need to realize they were partaking in a tradition that had happened year after year after year. The same tradition that David partook in that helped him to understand that it was the blood of the Lamb that saves him. So they had gone through this whole thing. And when they had set up the room, they would have set it up with four cups in front of Jesus. And the reason they would have four cups is because this is an oral tradition. And the people really weren't readers. A lot of them were illiterate. And so the, the way they would remember stories is they would use symbolism. So that by the time David heard this story multiple times, he could tell the story. So by the time David's kids had heard the story, they could tell the story. The cups actually represent chapters of the story. And it would have been told in a very similar fashion. It would have been participatory. All of the disciples would have been a part of this tradition that had been going on year after year. But the meal, before it even would have started, would have started with three loaves of bread. And Jesus would have taken these three loaves, three loaves representing the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he would have taken the center loaf and he would have torn it in half. And he would have taken that half of the bread and he would have wrapped it in a white linen cloth. And he would have set it aside. If it was a family where there were young kids, they actually would hide it. And then later in the meal, they would have the kids go and try to find it like, a, like an Easter egg hunt, if you will. But he would have set it aside, and then the meal would have begun. They would have ate together. And the scriptures actually say that they reclined at the table. You know why they reclined at the table? Because God told them to. Because God said the first time you take this meal, you're going to have to do it in haste because I'm about to set you free tomorrow. Every time you take it after that, take your time. Lay at the table, and enjoy it, and remember all that I did for you. Remember the story. Live into the story. See all the things i done for you. And they would have begun to tell the story. And so God, Jesus would have held up the first cup. And he said, this is the cup of slavery. Remember our people. Remember the Israelites. They were oppressed. They were held in bondage. They were in slavery. And they would have talked about the hardship. And they would have talked about the misery. And they would have talked about all those babies being killed. And they would have said, this is slavery. And they would have talked about that cup. And then they would have taken the second cup and nobody would drink from the second cup because the second cup was a cup of plagues. They would have dipped their finger in the cup. They would have passed it around the room. And every disciple would have put their finger in the cup and touched their plate and named the plagues in order. And after they named the plague, all of them would say, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't let the people go. Why is God doing all this? Because he's telling a story and he wants them to remember over and over and over that this isn't just some random act of events, but this is God's hand pointing the way to what Jesus was going to do. And then the amazing thing is Jesus would have picked up the third cup. And he would have said, this is my blood. Because this is the cup of sacrifice. This is Elijah's cup. This is the cup of salvation. That's what they would have been calling it for 1,400 years. They were calling this cup the cup of salvation not just some random cup not just some starting of a tradition that Jesus put in place but following the tradition that's now been in place for 3400 years he would hold up this cup the meal would have been over by now and he would have went and he would have found that loaf of bread and he would have unwrapped it think about Jesus in his white linen set aside he would have taken the bread out of the linen and he would have held it up and he would have said this is my body that was broken for you. All of those years, all of those traditions pointing towards a moment in history when Jesus kind of turned the table a little bit and he said, every time you gather, take this cup, take this bread, and remember, remember that I am the God who sees, I am the God who hears, and I am the God who rescues. We're going to take communion together and and we're going to do it a little bit differently than we normally do. I'm going to ask you to actually come down. So servers, if you want to come down and grab the trays and just, just line up between these steps maybe and all over the place. And, and when you come down, if you want to just come to any open tray and take the communion elements, that's great. There are going to be some people in the top with trays if you don't want to make the trek down or if that's hard for you. Uh, that's great. But we're also going to ask the prayer team to come down right now as well. So if you are part of the prayer team, come on down and put on your name tags. And the prayer team is actually going to stay on the stage. They'll be right up here and they'll be over there. And once you take communion, if you would like somebody to pray over you, to pray a blessing over you, to pray for something in particular, we want to do that. No pressure. We want that to be a part. For some of you, you just need to tell us that it all made sense today. That you got it. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that you've made a decision to follow Jesus. We would love to hear that if that's part of your decision today. For others of you, you just know you're in bondage and you need to let go. Some of you, are facing that diagnosis that's just eating you up, or you're in pain, or whatever it is. We we saw people healed in the first service. It's a powerful thing when God moves. So, So come down, take the elements. If you want to go back to your seat and just worship with us, that's great. If you want prayer, like I said, the prayer warriors are going to be up here on the stage, and they would love to just bless you. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night that he knew he was going to be betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. He it says in the same way he took the cup. He said, this is my blood spilled for you. Every time you drink it, remember me. Lord, thank you for this opportunity for us to partake in a, in a ceremony, in a tradition, in a sacrament that you put into place so long ago that reminds us that You just didn't show up a few thousand years later. You are at work in every moment of history. You are still at work in every moment of our lives. Help us to rest in the promises of your word, even when we can't figure it all out. Even when it feels like you're taking longer than we had hoped you would. Lord, help us to trust in your timing. Help us to trust that you are at work. Lord, I pray for the people who are already afraid of prayer. Who are saying, I think I'm supposed to get prayed for, but I I'm just not sure. Lord, help them to be sure. Help them know we just want to bless them. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. It'll probably be a little easier if you come to the center aisles and come down. If you come to the center aisles and come down, and then go back out the back aisles, that'll keep the traffic flow working. And we'd love to pray with you if you want us to pray for you.